curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill on Radio Live. At the movies with James Crute on Radio Live. Good evening, James Crute. Good evening, Ryan. How are you? Very good to be back in the chair talking the flicks with you. We're going to talk thrillers this week and a couple of them. A Simple Favour. What's this movie about? Yeah, so this is, it's based on a book which only came out last year, uh, which is all about a, a mummy vlogger. So a video blogger, if you like, whose specific audience is moms, um, who meets uh, the mother of one of the other first graders, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, uh, who's a sort of high-powered PR at a um, designer. And um, the two seem like, you know, disparate kind of people, you know, high flyer versus widow who's just sort of struggling to make ends meet and this blogging thing is her way of, um, you know, trying to trying to make some kind of a living in between picking up and dropping off your kid. Anyway, after after mm. they established this relationship, all of a sudden um, uh, she asks the uh, Emily, the high-flying one, played by Blake Lively, asks, um, asks Stephanie, played by Anna Kendrick, to look after her child, pick him up from school and take him home. Um, so a few hours go past, having done that, and no word. Can't raise her. Mm. Uh, comes to 11 o'clock at night, still nothing. Comes to two or three days later, still nothing. And the husband, Emily's husband has been away overseas, and um, she finally manages to get a hold of him, and he says, oh, okay, I don't know what's going on. And, and he flies back from London, and eventually they decide to declare Emily a missing person. And that's when the whole kind of twisty-turny thriller mm. begins, really. I won't say any more, because... A lot of the the great part about this story is how original it kind of feels and how many twists and turns there are and how it keeps you sort of engaged until the uh, final frames, really, as to what's going on. Yeah, we'll debate until the cows come home, uh, the, I guess, the merits of movies that were once books and how well they did in portraying it. I'm, I'm not asking you if I, you've read I it. I guess the uh, thing with this is that... that you know, it, it was basically created as a screenplay at the same time it was a book. Right. It was optioned before the book was finished kind of thing. Gotcha. Um, and I think I think that's one of the advantages these days. So it's more, more the premise. Um, but, of course, having a book out there these days is probably what helps a film get made mm. because you've got to have a kind of a recognisable franchise almost now of some description. So I guess a best-selling book is as good as anything. Um, you know, that's how things like Gone Girl and The Girl girl on the Train and those sort of things are, are getting made, you know, in amongst all the really big blockbuster sequels and franchises and that kind of thing. Mm, yeah, such as, you know, The Lord of the Rings, probably the greatest ever example <laughs> of, of a trilogy uh, turn into an, well, an institution uh, now in terms of New Zealand. Well, you think of Harry Potter, they've now managed to get, what, ten movies, will now be ten movies out of seven books, essentially, or seven books. Is that, plus, is that right? Plus change. Is there more, are there well, more movies well, than books? Well, the Fantastic Beasts uh, series, which is got its second one coming out in November as the second kind of spin-off movie. But, you know, they split the last book into two. There was there was that trend where they were splitting all the plot, the, all the books into two. Then Peter Jackson took it too far and split the Hobbit in three, and that was the end of that, I think. They tell me I should read Hunger Games. I love the movies. 
but I haven't read the books. But apparently, and there's very another good. example. I think three books, four movies. You know that kind of thing. Mm. It was rife, but I think they've I think they've pulled back on that idea now. Uh, there've been a couple of things like the similarly themed Divergent, which is kind of stalled right in the middle of the series. They got to three and then got stuck. Mm. And I think they were making the last one for television, and it hasn't happened yet, so it's all very weird. Yeah, battling away. Hey, the other one we're going to discuss is a recent release, Searching. What's this about? Yes, now this was uh, first debuted at the New Zealand Film Festival, actually, and it's just come back out. It's uh, getting some great notices in the States, and, and well-deserved, too. I guess it's the kind of uh, the specific premise of this one. So it's a, a basic concept of a father who uh, has been widowed in the last couple of years. His wife died of cancer. He's got a teenage daughter. He thinks that they're connecting really well, but then he kind of discovers that they're not, and like as in a simple favor um this time the daughter disappears and so he's desperately trying to find it but the thing with the way this is told it's all told through screens so it's all told through facetime it's all told through uh you know desktop laptop phone uh also tv screens to a degree as well some live footage but you just sort of you know you are the voyeur in this watching the the cursor sort of move around the screen and click on various things and you know in particular what's quite haunting and and clever is when the father discovers that he doesn't know his daughter that well and discovers he doesn't really know who her friends are he then has to try and get into her various social media accounts and it's just a maze of passwords and things like that and and how you know one thing leads to another also how easy it is potentially to break in it's also disturbing mm. um, you know in the end it becomes a kind of a kind of uh, straightforward thriller and and perhaps a little bit too predictable and almost a little too far-fetched but but having said that the novelty of it is just it's just been well thought out and cleverly put together mm, certainly sounds like there's been a little bit more effort go into it than you know the likes of scream and things which were <laughs> the thrillers when i was growing up uh, that gave yeah, me well, nightmares there were certain charms there were certain charms of that um i see one of the things that's being played on TVNZ at the moment, they're going through the old back catalogue of the Freddy Krueger movies. Ooh. Back from the 80s, the old Nightmare on Elm Street. Now, the first one is, is, is a brilliant concept. Um, you know, this idea of dreams coming to life. The sequels just get more and more ridiculous. Mm. Um, you know, it's just, just one of those things. But, uh, yeah, you know, the horror has its has its moments and at the moment it seems to be having one and and you know these thrillers i think are an example of those of of you know moving that uh edge a little bit sideways making them you know less horrific and more thrilling if you like and and you know it's proving it's finding an audience the ones that stick out for me i love reminiscing child's play can't watch it, can't watch it, won't watch it ever. Yeah, but yeah. the two I can watch and I will still enjoy, Edward Scissorhands, one of the oh, greats, yeah. and yep. Beetlejuice. I used to get terrified. Oh, see, they're both by the same director there, both Tim Burton movies. Ah, very so, good. So, yeah, well, I guess, you know, there was always a childlike quality to those kind of things. Look, I grew up very much introduced to horror movies of different descriptions from a very young age rightly or wrongly i watched watership down when i was about five or six which was horrifically traumatizing then saw the new zealand film the scarecrow at 
quite a young age as well. And then, yeah, I guess I grew up in an era when, you know, those horror movies were kind of... The Friday the 13th, The Nightmare on Elm Streets were kind of... The, the one I can't really uh, stand too much of the Hellraiser series. I just don't understand them, really. Just lots of people with needles sticking out of their face and not saying much. <laughs> Silence of the Lamb was always one that I oh, found, found that... legendary. Mm. Um, what, what was the one that was the, um, the all those backpackers that got murdered in the outback of Australia? Uh, oh, Wolf Creek? Wolf Creek, yeah. yeah. I've never seen the end of that. I, I, <laughs> I tapped out of it about two-thirds the way through and couldn't do it, so... I'm not lining up for another viewing. But, but you know, what sort of place do the thrillers have in today's, uh, you know, in terms of a genre in today's scene? Is there still as many of them as there used to be? Well, I think, as I say, they tend to come in waves. And I think, I think the success of It in particular last year, which was massive, mm. uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, I think that's probably you know, made Hollywood sit up and think, well, how can we turn this? Also, the kind of... Uh, often these are quite cheap to make, and so the returns are quite high, so there's always going to be a kind of industry for them. Yeah. You know, there's always going to be an audience for them, whether they're any good or not. I mean, the, the, the latest uh, movie in what's described as the Conjuring universe, called The Nun, has has made a significant amount of money. And, you know, it's it's just got a, a name recognition factor and the fact people know that they're going to be scared by it, I think. But but all these movies are all based on seeing them early. Mm. They're, they're not about... They're not slow burners that people will suddenly discover months later. There have been a couple of examples that have gone against that kind of trend. Do you think of A Quiet Place, the um, yep. Emily Blunt one from yes. earlier this year? I mean, that, and that was a kind of... That was, that was all about the horror of using sound or using silence so brilliantly, effectively. Um, you know, it was kind of like those M. Night Shyamalan ones from 15, 20 years ago. Just the concept itself was clever enough. But then you go back, you know, you go back to the Hitchcock movies of the 50s and 60s. <laughs> yeah. They were essentially horror movies, but but aimed very much at an adult audience. Yeah, for sure. So out of these two movies we've discussed, A Simple Favour and Searching, which would you lean to in terms of your recommendation for us to go out and watch? Well, I think, I think just in terms of the whole kind of enjoyment package, probably slightly A Simple Favour. But the thing is with that, it is really a kind of black comedy at the same time as well. There's lots of hilarious moments. In a, in a way, it's kind of a... Uh, for older listeners, it's kind of a pastiche of those movies that they used to make in France in the 50s and 60s, which were all about people trying to plot to murder each other. I guess Dial M for Murder that Hitchcock did is probably the kind of movie that this is inspired by. It's also directed by Paul Fagg, who's uh, been behind some of the best sort of female-led acting movies of the last few years. You think of things like the Ghostbusters remake and Spy and Bridesmaids. Mm. So he knows how to get the best out of female characters and out of um, act female actors. You know, he he knows how to bring them to four. He know, knows how to direct them with style and just let them do their thing. Really, um, mm. I think that's that's particularly. It, it just it, I don't know. It just felt very slick and very clever and and kept you guessing. Searching is more of a low budget kind of film, but particularly if you're into the mechanics of. Um, 
filmmaking and things like that. This is this is a film that's more likely to inspire someone who's interested in filmmaking because it's the sort of thing you could do. You know, we had Steven Soderbergh making a, a horror movie on an iPhone earlier this year called Unsane with Claire Foy from The Crown. So, you know, the, all this digital technology is making things more accessible to people. And mm. this is kind of a masterclass in what you could do with it. I, uh, I love it how you've sort of, you've managed to throw back to the French New Wave cinema, which was a, fas <laughs> a fascinating period in the in the sort of 50s and well, 60s. Well, Diabolique is probably the movie that uh, a simple favour is, in fact, they even name check it. And, and the soundtrack is kind of really quirky because it's full of kind of vintage French pop, which mm. of course has to be heard to be believed. <laughs> James Crute, thank you very much and we'll talk again in seven days. Will do. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of peace, words to make the fighting season. Words with Max Cryer. Max, good evening. Good evening to you. Nice to see you again. How have you been? Well, it's the time of year when things are supposed to get better, aren't they? Well, it is spring. The sun shines and the leaves come out of the trees. And I've seen already some trees in flower, which is a good good feeling. Mm. But it's not actually warm. Not no, warm. not yet. It's been a bit crisp and clear, though, which is a sign oh, spring's on the way. Words, and crisp. the tuis, there's lots of tuis out there in the blossom trees, I've noticed. Yes, yes, it's that's beautiful. a good thing. Yes. Words this week. Let's start with the word suffragette. Well, it's a weird one, this one. Um... I, I chose it because uh, we're conscious of the word in New Zealand and there's a certain anniversary coming up, but when I started to work on the origin of the word, I had a few surprises. The origin of the word suffragette dates back to medieval Latin, mm. but it's, it's quite complex because originally suffragari could mean a kind of moral support, and this travelled through to ancient French in the 2000s as suffrage, meaning a plea, an intercession. And then, curiously, by the 1300s, it became a prayer for the dead. Oh, yes, oh. yes, at a funeral, regarding the dead as the departed soul and making a plea for their peaceful acceptance into the afterlife. Now, that's not totally unrelated with what happened to it after that, because gradually the word suffrage gained a more general meaning involving life before death, um, instead of supporting in order to achieve life. And by the 1500s, this had extended to mean voting for someone or something. And by 1787, the word suffrage reached the American Constitution, meaning the political right to vote. Now, in Britain, I think as we all know, this vote voting right was strictly confined to men. Mm. But in 1866, a women's suffrage committee was formed and collected 1,500 signatures in favour of women's rights to vote. And a year after that, in 1867, the real, the real um, soot hit the fan when the Manchester Society for Women's Suffrage was founded. And from then on, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women started fighting for the cause. And the sticky brown stuff started to hit the fan in a big way. Riots, street demonstrations, marches, chanting, public protesting, but very, very, very major resistance from the men. Now, by that time, we get back to the word. By that time, England had borrowed from France the syllable et, E-T-T-E-T, -E -T -E which signified that whatever it was attached to was something smaller than usual, 
or was female. Mm. Kitchens, if they were kitchens, if they were small, they were called kitchenettes. Ushers were men, usherettes were women. And in 1906, there was a bad-tempered and narrow-minded journalist called Charles Hands, who, like 99% of the men in Britain, had total scorn for the idea of women voting. And in the Daily Mail newspaper, he first used this word, suffragette. It was the first time it had been seen in English, and it suggested both meanings of the suffix et, smaller than normal and female. It was Mm. a very, very big put-down. Now, the women ignored it. This did not hold them back one bit. They raged on inspired. They spat on policemen. They went on hunger strikes. They disrupted political meetings. They marched in busy streets. And another newspaper published its own definition, suffragette, a woman who ought to have more sense. But the women of Britain marched on. And as we know, during all this, the New Zealand women had already gained the parliamentary vote, September the 19th, 1893. Mm. But the women in Britain had to wait another 25 years. In 1918, the first women were allowed to vote in Britain, wait for this, if they were over 30 years old, oh. if they were a householder or married to a householder of a house whose annual rent was at least five pounds. Oh. Now, that restricted it somewhat. It's shocking. Yeah. It's shocking. Yes, I quite agree, <laughs> yes. And, and in the meantime, the New Zealand women, who hadn't really had an easy ride at all, but who had achieved what they wanted many, many years before without these silly restrictions, mm. and curiously, the term suffragette surpassed the mean things which men wrote about the word, and it began to gain a certain dignity and pride. Now, speaking as a language scholar, that's me, I'm, in, I'm intrigued that a word which started out being reviled, laughed at, scorned, insulted, is now regarded, at least by us in New Zealand, as epitomising vigorous good sense, well-placed confidence, and dignified self-evaluation. Kate Shepherd. Well, yes, I mean, I'm sure she had her faults, but we look back on that era with some pride that this country allowed those women to, mm. to stand on their own feet. We were the first... We've got to get the definition right here. We were the first self-governing country in the world to acknowledge the right of women to take part in an election procedure. Mm. There were women voting in other places, a couple of places in America, but not for the government. Um, um, Part of the Isle of Man, women Mm. were allowed to vote for property values, but not for a self-governing, acknowledging uh, election procedure. So... um, the gist of what I've been muddling around trying to say is that we in New Zealand, I, I can't speak for everybody, regard the suffragettes of our country as women of some dignity mm. who stuck to their purpose, kept on going, won what they wanted to win, and then sort of gradually moved into the era that we take for granted that we have women members of parliament, women governor general, women mayor, mm. no problem. But Britain behaved appallingly, appallingly. They moaned and groaned and wrote bitchy things in newspapers and the women marched on. And in 1918, the first women were allowed to vote in Britain if they were over 30. So that's 25 years, isn't it? Yeah, 25 years later than New Zealand. 25 years after New Zealand. Still a long time. I didn't know that. It's hardly ever mentioned here. We're so... We're so accustomed to women having had the vote. I mean, obviously, in your lifetime, in my lifetime, and many, many lifetimes before. Mm. And we know the fact, 
and we know the year, but I didn't really realise till I started to work on t tonight's programme how long the British women had to wait. Mm. 25 more years. Well, the, that'd be 100 years this year, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Uh, mm. No. Well, what year did you say? 19, uh, 1918. 1918. Yeah, it'd be 100 years this year since the, the well, British have had it. Well, good luck to them. <laughs> mm. Mm. And uh, Prime Ministers over that time, there's Maggie, yeah. Theresa May... I don't know any other... And curiously, right through hundreds of years when the person wearing the crown did have power, mm. several of them were women, mm. but that was never taken as an example. I mean, even when all this was going on, I mean, Victoria was on the throne with a, with a huge amount of power uh, um, That's during, right. during the rise of the women in Britain wanting the vote. And they've just changed the protocol in the royal family, so it's always the eldest-born is next in line with the throne, not the eldest-born male, yes. too. That's happened yes. in the last couple of years, too. Yes, David yes. Bowie sang a great song, Suffragette City. Did he? Yeah, I didn't I, know that. But I don't know what, what, uh, how he's, he's used that word. I mean, it is in the chorus suffragette city but um but you see even the fact that david bowie used the word shows how it's gone into usage without being an insult mm. but it was a huge insult suffragette it meant you were female and well, small well kitchenette's a bit of an insult now well, little kitchenette <laughs> yes but what you're saying is that that's a place a small place for a woman well not necessarily. Sometimes you see a flat advertised, which has a, you know, one bedroom, one kitchenette. I don't think there's a gender attached to the word kitchenette, but um, it, it's not a word we hear a lot of. But the point was that it was considered to be either something small or something female. Mm. Um, ushers and usherettes. Usherettes were girls. But that's the fascinating thing about the segment, Max. I just use kitchenette thinking it's a small kitchen in an apartment. Yeah. But now that I've I actually sit back and think about what that word means, it does have that gender connotation to it. Uh, but I guess in, in this day and age, that's been lost. I think so, mm. yes. I, I mean, I, I spend my life working among words, and I didn't know either of those things, that et came from French, and it meant small and female. Now, why is something described as hemmed in? I, I guess you could say we're hemmed into this little studio. Uh, yes, uh, we are. In, in a way. Uh, but we'll, put, we'll put the suffragettes aside for a while. Yes. We'll talk about hemmed it's in. It's being hemmed in. Well... Why do we say something, the question was, why do we say something or someone is hemmed in? Well, it sounds as if it should be connected to the word to describe the cut edge of a piece of fabric, uh, which is then gently folded up. In your trousers. And, and the fold is held in place with stitching. Mm. So no raw edge is seen, but a neat, uh, a neat stitch fold. The cut fabric has been hemmed. Well, yes, being hemmed is actually a relation of the same word, but it's developed a different meaning. The ancestor of that word, hemmed, is from Belgium, and it means an enclosed piece of land, a hem with two M's and an E, H-E-M-M-E. -M -M -E. Mm. When it came into English, there was a slight change of spelling and um, also a modification as just H-E-M, hem, and it gained a similar meaning, the edge or the border, which enclosed something, and gradually this took on the meaning more of the edge of something than the main significance, because the main significance in Belgium was it referred to enclosing something. Mm. And the hem of your shirt or the hem of your, or your skirt or your trousers is not actually enclosing anything, it's simply finishing it off. So no. in, in English, the edges of garments and handkerchiefs and tablecloths and skirts and shorts 
edges of garments are normally not left raw with a cut edge. They're turned up narrowly, stitched into place to look good, and it's called a hem. But this is what the listener noticed, that sometimes in English there's a leap backwards when you say something is hemmed in, mm. and you do hear somebody say mm -hmm. that. Now that's the back to the old, old Belgian meaning of land being enclosed. Perhaps someone in a crowded sports match sees friends a few metres away and would like to join them but is not able to move because of being hemmed in by the crush of people crowded around. A man reported making his way through a farmer's field and for some reason the cows didn't like the look of him and they formed into a circle hemming him in with two M's, you see. Mm. Exactly the old um, Belgian meaning. When he was gladly able, this bloke was gladly able to get to their style, he said he'd been hemmed in. So we have one Belgian word which in English has inquired not two meanings but just one extra meaning because the narrow stitched border around the perimeter of your handkerchief or the edge of your collar is a modification of the word H-E-M-M-E and that word really means the actual border containing something which can be quite capacious like a piece of land. So a modern garment has a hem around the perimeter, but that hem carries no connotation of indicating that it's enclosing anything. Whereas the original meaning indicates that a border around land, it's H-E-M-M-E, -M -M -E, mm. indicates ownership, and anything beyond that border isn't yours. Mm. Is that too complicated to follow? No, I've got it. I have. <laughs> yes, it takes... Uh, a, uh, are you telling me that that's the actual spelling of him, H-E-M-M-E? Because -M -M -E? I don't think I've ever written that word down. No, you haven't, no. No, no it's just H-E-M. It's simply spelled H-E-M. But, but it has... But the origins it, of property, obviously. It, it started with land. Yes, oh, indeed. That's, that's all, what it's all about. So him was your boundary. The and then him was the H-E-M-M-E, -M -M -E, if you were Belgian. Yes. Was the boundary and anything inside that H-E-M-M-E -M -M -E was yours. Mm. And well, if you were surrounded, you were hemmed in. Yeah. Uh, and then, I guess, so to speak, those two meanings have gone in different directions so yes. the boundary has ended up being your shirts and your trousers and the hem the boundary of with one m yes the boundary of the cotton uh, and then hemmed in has, has retained that old meaning yes that's quite right um it, it misses one rather valid point that the hem of your the sleeve of your shirt or the bottom of your t-shirt has a hem on it for sure but all it's doing is it's not actually enclosing anything it's finishing it off mm. It doesn't indicate that, that if you see a pile of shirts with hems on the bottom, you can't necessarily say that that hem indicates ownership. Whereas if you land with an H-E-M-M-E -M -M -E around it, then you can't go on it. It's the first time I've heard you bringing up a Belgian influence for our words. Is that well, a little bit rare? Well, yes, actually, I don't recall having done much to do with Belgian references. No. I mean, Lord knows it's close enough to England, but... Um, we tend to forget how close England is to the continent. I remember when I was working in London years ago, there was a, a French woman uh, I knew who was working with me, and she spoke perfect English, but she was very amused at the mm. attitude of English people. And one day she said that she remembered this extraordinary remark when there had been a storm in the Channel, mm. the English Channel, which the French people never call the English Channel, mm. and she said there was a storm and the continent was cut off from England. <laughs> That's what they said. And 
It was a sort of a joke in French that the continent Excuse was cut me. off. <laughs> oh, that is, yeah. What, what do the French call that that body La of manche. water? The La manche. manche. Ah. If ever you watch, see, uh, we can agree with the Australians. It's the Tasman Ocean. But if we didn't agree, we'd have our own names for it. I have found in Australia beaches on the west coast to saying that they're on the Pacific Ocean. Oh yeah. Yeah. When they're actually well, on the, the... Australians never say the Tasman no, Sea. No, they wouldn't. I've never heard of an Australian admit that there was a Tasman Sea. <laughs> yeah, that's actually... You're right. In Sydney, they say they look out to the Pacific. Yes, and they but don't. It, but it's in line with Auckland. Absolutely. <laughs> they're looking out at the Tasman Sea. Okay, more words with Max okay. Cryer next on Radio Life. Life. The universe. And everything in between. Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill on Radio Live. Words with Max Cryer. <coughs> Max, we continue with the word uh, a chit. Now, a chit is a small piece of paper. The only time I've really known it is the old taxi chit at boarding school, which we would get. <laughs> and when we were naughty, we would write other kids' sort of account numbers on so it never got charged back to us. We'd write a whole, scribble a whole bunch of numbers on and just give it to the red cab and away we went. So the taxi chit would be the only use of the word I've ever had for chit. I wonder if anyone from the board of your school is listening. No. And we'll go through the records. Oh, they could. <laughs> that, I'd, I'd owe them a little bit for taxis. But uh, the chit uh, it just reminds me of the word, the stub, like a raffle yes. ticket stub chit. Am I on the right? Absolutely. Yes. No, you're absolutely right. And, and you're also absolutely right that it's not used all that much nowadays. But it does exist, and most people know what it means. A chit is a, a small piece of paper with a purpose. It's not just a ripped-off piece of paper. It is an indication of something, and it's been used since the 1700s, possibly even for taxis in the 1700s, um, because it's a little piece of paper with some significance, and it's very often to do with money, selling, buying, parking a car. If you park your car in some places, they give you a chit to demonstrate that you're, you know, at that restaurant or whatever. You have some something on the um, the chit of information. It can be a signed note for money owed, for food, drink, any kind of receipt, a voucher, uh, similar like at a pawn shop. Yes, that's right. P a w n shop. P-A-W-N yeah. shop. They give you a little chit saying, yes. uh, if you don't collect this in a month's time, yes, etc. Yes. I had forgotten that one. Now, sometimes it's said in as chitty. It's sometimes said here as a chitty because the origin of the word is actually Indian. It's a Hindustani word and it is chitty. C-I-T-T-H-I. Mm. And it means much the same thing, a small note. It's not quite clear why, but the word sometimes is heard as a slang word for a young woman particularly if she's of small build and if more particularly if for some reason you don't approve of her she will be referred to as that little chit now you look dumbstruck as if you've never heard that no before. you've no. obviously had a pure life haven't you absolutely yeah. but you did bugger not, up the not, taxi not that little shit that little chit 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 yes and that's derogatory well, it's impolite. I wouldn't necessarily say derogatory. It's not widely heard, but it's one of the things I have to include in case somebody writes it and say, well, he didn't mention, you know, my sister used to be called the little chit. But I did, I, I loved your story about the taxi chit because that's exactly what chit actually means, a small mm. piece of paper with some information on it which has some indication towards money owed. Chit, yeah, it's a funny sort of word, isn't it? Chit. It's, a, it's a very difficult thing... Um, 
I have a lot of uh, a lot of my time is spent translating things for Americans, and when when Americans are in New Zealand, they're they're besieged with words they don't understand. And one of them is that at the end of a meal, an American in a restaurant, an American expects to be given a check, mm. a C H E C K, whereas we might expect an account mm. or even a chit. But no, a restaurant would never, I think, give you a bill for your meal and call it a check. But in America, they do. So that can cause confusion in a restaurant here. You know the old sign language when you're in a, a chit, when you, you open your hands um, like a menu book, you open your hands like a book when you want the menu, and then if you're asking for the bill and they're a little while away, you just you do a little signing with your hand. You exactly, hold your, your, exactly. your thumb and your first finger together and you sign as if yeah. you're signing the, so the check. In midair. Yeah, yes, and that's sort of the... And I guess that is a reference to the check. Well, sometimes people who come to visit our country... I have to be told gently that we do speak New Zealand here, mm. not necessarily standard English and certainly not American. Because I noticed that most of the hotels in New Zealand now have stopped saying ground floor. Because American tourists... Oh, that, that's a very big... There's a lot of contentions because well, that's complain. the first floor. Well, it's not, of course. It's the floor on the ground, so it's the ground floor. Yes, but Americans go one one is the ground yes. floor, two is what we yes, would call we the first floor. we are not Americans. We are not in America. And the fact that Americans press thought that G meant garage mm. is really not our problem. <laughs> that is but their problem. Are you saying that in New Zealand B is basement for the ba are you used to B for being below the ground? I don't know what they used to have for basement. Some Ameri some hotels don't have a, a parking area underneath the ground floor. Mm. Um, but there are now you, there's now both systems. You go to some hotels where the ground floor is called one because it is the first floor. See, I like one being yes, the it's being the first floor. Well, no, I like one being the ground because that's the yes, yes, yes. But that's what I mean. It yes. is it is on the ground. It is the first of the floors. Yes, you step out correct. of it onto the street. We've had this debate before. It's not a debate. It's, a, it's a, a merely a comment on the existing situation, which is that Americans are very bossy and that sometimes uh, New Zealand businessmen are weak and will do something because Americans want it done. Yeah, uh, there's actually a car park in Auckland that I know that has two lifts in it, and one of the lifts has G for the for ground. ground and the other lift for that level is one so they're all everything's out of sync by one so oh, it's, well, a, it's a very I'm easy one to get lost in i'm not intending to, yeah, to go there i'm not going to tell you where either so you'll never know shall we move on to the cicadas oh i love the cicadas it really feels like summer's kicked in they were very late i felt in new zealand this last summer uh, but they're just beautiful at, at night the cicadas well there are those listeners who possibly don't agree with you because it can be rather intrusive. But my job is to talk about the song of the cicadas and how they do it. Because when a cicada starts to sing, you can certainly hear it. And uh, as you say, it'll be happening, if not now, it'll be happening soon. During the peak of summer, they, they have a massed chorus which can be deafening. And it's only the males that you're hearing. It is their way of courting, courting the females. The most distinctive feature of cicadas is their ability to sing. And the reader said, how do they sing? Because they don't actually have a throat. Well, in the usual definition of the word, they're not actually singing. Cicadas don't have a throat or vocal cords. But the ones we hear, the males, have ribbed exterior membranes on each side at the base of the abdomen. And those membranes are called 
timbals with a Y, T-Y-M, timbals. Mm. Each timbal is attached by a tendon to a powerful muscle, powerful in cicada terms, you understand. Mm. As the muscle contracts, it buckles the shape of the timbal, going through a motion rather like when a domed lid of a jar is first unsealed and it causes a burst of sound, a, mm. little, a puff, a pulse. After the cicada's muscle pulls the timbal out of shape, it releases it suddenly, the muscle is relaxed, the timbal pops back into shape, and the digestive and reproductive organs are reduced in the male, making room for large air sacs in the abdomen, and they provide amplification for the pulsing of the timbal. So the timbal is pulled out of position, mm. snapped back into shape, and the snapping back is amplified in a sort of hollow inside the abdomen of the, of the cicada. Now, the contractions that I mentioned that it's taken me a minute and a half to describe can be very, very rapid, much quicker they than are. that. They are, yes. Very rapid and very repetitive. They can be varied in sound, it doesn't have to be the same sound. They can vary the sound, the pulse rate, the pattern, the frequency, and levels of amplification, as any singer can do, but they're doing it not with their voice. They do it with rapid, repeated muscle contractions. Now, there's a wide variation on the sounds between different species. Some sound like screeches. Others have a more restrained sort of faint chirp. And there are sometimes individual species which whose noise is so specific that they can be identified by the song alone some cicadas also make a sharp clacking sound by tapping their wings against the branch it's believed that the family known as the chorus cicada in new zealand that's the largest species has a wingspan which can reach eight centimeters and it's also the loudest when all the adults emerge and start singing at the same time, which hasn't quite happened yet, has it? Maybe in a month's time? No, I, th I think at least a month. I'd be waiting till summer. Till two months. Yeah, yeah, a couple of months. Well, when they all emerge, I hope people will remember all this, when the cicadas emerge and they all start singing at the same time. Now, all this is going on and the sound is being heard by other cicadas because they, they don't have ears, but they have membranous plates at the base of the abdomen. They hear through their stomach capsules of hearing organs inside. Female cicadas can de detect the direction of sound and so they can track the singing male who appeals to them. Oh, <laughs> How on earth would you distinguish between all those well, cicadas? We, well, the girls, they're sport for choice. But they can do it. I mean, can this they? is the point. We, they probably wonder how on earth we decide. We're not we really... See, this is... You're, you're heading into David Attenborough territory here. This oh, isn't a word, Max. I'm on you, a, you're, you're an Attenborough in disguise. I'm on a hundred kilometre distance from David Attenborough. But if he were here, he would say the same thing, because that's where I got the information from. Now, a word about the, the level of sound. This is the intriguing. Yes. The level of sound cicadas can create. If the group is fairly large, a sizable swarm, I'll say that again, a sizable swarm of cicadas can make a noise reaching 90 decibels, which a New Zealand factory making that noise would be legally closed down. Mm. But the law can't close down cicadas, and one particularly noisy group registered a sound only slightly below the noise of a cruising 747 jet plane. Now, one piece of advice I was told to give you, to the listeners, one piece of advice from an optimistic man of science is that if the male cicadas are in full cry, just think of the sound as being rather like the experience of being at a rock concert because the decibel level is roughly the same. Wow. <laughs>
90 decibels. I think you get your car pulled over for that too. Really? Yeah, something somewhere up, up around there. Max, let's finish with what is an interesting word. What is the origin of the word porn? And we're not talking about the shop where you sell your your jewellery. We're talking about the <laughs> no, explicit not. magazines in, in your uh, wardrobe cupboard, or perhaps these days more the uh, the graphic and R18 material that is available on the internet at uh, various websites. So porn, P-O-R-N, where did that word come from? Well, it's a short version, of course, of the, the, the whole word, which is pornography. And the basis here is ancient Greek. Uh, the word it comes from is pernanai, pernanai, which meant to sell. And that became modified into porne, still meaning to sell. But it drifted towards the concept of selling and buying sexual favours. Hence, an ancient Greek shorthand for prostitution. Now, some ancient regions were more liberally inclined towards flesh pleasures than some of the later regions. So there were temples of worship which encouraged artworks on their walls of attractive and friendly women, and their being depicted was described with the Greek word graphos, to depict. Hence you got pornographos in Greek, meaning visuals, usually obscene, of sexual dalliance and activity. Now the word didn't become widespread immediately, it gravitated from Greek through French, eventually into English, but only in, until 1840, and it didn't settle down into meaning general obscenity until the early 1900s. And pornography, pornography, usually said pornography, started out meaning pictures, but the graphos bit, which meant pictures, came to include words. So mm. pornography now can be visual illustration or words. Pornographos. Pornographos. Graphos. Yeah. I like that one. That's a much better word. Pornographos. Now today is a, a slightly sad uh, anniversary, an end to what had become an integral feature of New Zealand's lifestyle because since 1896, for 80 years, a ferry service between Little and Littleton and oh, Wellington yes. was used by countless hundreds of New Zealanders and visitors to get themselves between the South Island and the North Island. But apart from the rising cost of the service, the increase of quicker and more frequent air flights, plus the establishment of a shorter ferry service from Picton to Wellington, finally caused the writing on the wall for the Littleton-Wellington service. And on today's date, September the 15th, 1976, the last ferry did the last inter-island journey. Did you sail that trip, Max? Yeah, you know, I missed out. I was you about, never did? No, I was heading to do something in the South Island um, and planning to do that. But uh, 1976 intervened, there was and a, they stopped. There was a call after the earthquake when the road, of course, around Kaikoura was shut down mm. to open that service back up, but it never eventuated. I wonder how long that would have been. Would it have been overnight? Yes. 10, 12 yeah. hours, yes. something like that? Yes, it was overnight. Mm. It's, uh... But then uh, the Picton one, which I have done, is much quicker because when you leave Picton, you can sort of... In a few minutes, you can actually see Wellington, mm. and you can't. Well, you actually have to come around and, and head, I guess, what's north-west slightly to then get around into the mm. into the sounds, because Wellington sits just ever so slightly below the top of the South Island. But I think there was sadness about it, because um, it was a major feature of, of businesses who, who needed to travel. Um, members of Parliament used it all the time. 
coming from South Island to the north, to Wellington. Oh, the, the public transport in this country outside uh, flying, which is very expensive, is, is terrible. It's basically the roads or nothing. There isn't really a train service you can catch outside of Auckland unless you're going to Wellington uh, or anywhere. And the boat is certainly the only option across the strait. But outside of those, I think 100 years ago, we probably had far more public transport options than and today. And I'm predicting that because you're young and fit that you're a very good cyclist. Oh, I'm a very good driver instead, Max. <laughs> Thank you, Max Cry. We'll look forward to seeing you again next week. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. It's nearly 10 o'clock on the weekend variety wireless. News Hub standing by for the latest news from here and around the world. After 10 o'clock, immigration. Everyone's got an opinion. Political left versus political right. Refugees, Jacinda, Winnie, they need to talk more. Nobody knows what's happening. But everyone's got an opinion. Forget the opinions. We're going to study the human statistics and the information we have at hand is from a sample size of New Zealanders and it is our attitudes towards immigration. And Jonathan Dodd will join us after the news to discuss this with the facts on the attitudes of New Zealanders. And we're talking a sample size and actual information, not just opinions. So you will learn what New Zealanders actually think when sampled in a reasonable sample size about immigration. The results may surprise you. Also, airplay. Circus duo Seth Bloom and Christina Jelson are these fantastic performers who uh, are here to put on their show airplay. So we will hear from them as well after the news at 10 o'clock. After 11, yes, we're going to play some music. The band is Rhombus and the album is Bass Player. We can't play it in its entirety. We don't have enough time, but I've selected nine tracks off that brilliant debut album so you can sit back, relax, enjoy your drive on the road. It is really good listening music tonight. That's after 11 o'clock here on the Weekend Variety Wireless.